0: Nuclear energy, There was a study by NASA, I think, something between um, 1970 and 2009, saved over a million lives as a result of, of reduced pollution from, from coal and gas. Um, so nuclear is a life-saving technology today, let alone in the future if it can combat climate change. And the fact that that isn't just the one focus just frustrates me. Welcome to The Pin Factory, the Addison Institute's podcast. My name is Matthew Lesh and I'm the head of research at the ASI. In this week's edition, I'm joined by our head of government, John MacDonald, and to, for a double John Jeopardy, I'm also joined by John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx. So the real question here, gentlemen, is who is the good John and who is the, who is the bad John? Obviously, there has to be one on the
1: other I'm willing I'll... to take the bad John. Sure,
2: I'll be good, Wait. John. <laughs>
0: Let's get straight into it. So in today's episode, we'll be talking about the spending review, the latest COVID news, and Boris's green industrial revolution. This week, Chancellor Rishi Sunak announced a one-year spending review. It was grim reading. The economy is said to contract by 11.3% and a record borrowing of almost £400 million pounds this year, while unemployment is predicted to hit £2.6 million next year. In response, Rishi announced record spending plans across all departments. I guess the, the first question to start with, so to what extent should we be happy or concerned ab- about this? What was, quite frankly, uh, a quite big spending budget? I'd say I'd go to go to John first, but I'm probably going to have to pick a John here. <laughs> so, John Ashwell, why don't you come in?
1: How
2: concerned we should we be? I mean, very. I, it's pretty. It was a pretty gloomy sort of a statement. I think it is worth saying, though, and I think we might come onto to this a bit later, that the, the forecasts which were that underpinned everything that Rishi Sunak said were out of date before he actually got up to speak. I think I even read somewhere that they they to the printers before the updated forecast came out, which I think is says everything about the way modern Britain runs. <laughs> um, but I mean, they're still either way they'll still be very bad. Um, I think there is a temptation to read too much into what, as you say, is just a one year spending review. It's not a full budget. Um, there's necessarily an enormous amount of uncertainty around the figures and the uh, various forecasts. I would treat them, if not with a pinch of salt, then with a very high degree of caution because we just don't know when vaccines are going to be ready, how easy they are to can be roll out, what the effects that will be, um, how other countries are going to cope with the same issues we are and what that will mean for trade and getting back to normal. So I think there's always a lot of uncertainty around uh, these kinds of forecasts, but you know, triply so now. So while it is gloomy, I think the only real, I think the only real position you can take with any confidence is just that you don't know.
1: Uh, Mark Littlewoods over at the IA said it best. I think Rishi's proven a much better diagnostician than a surgeon, uh, as, as as John just said. I think I think he knows, even if his figures were a bit wrong, uh, that the economy is in a bad way. But the proposed remedies and the spending review suggest the government's looking to spend big and spend politically. I'm not feeling too great about increasing departmental budgets and and rewriting of the uh, of the levelling up funds to, to favour red wall seats. The Northern Investment Bank, most worryingly, private sector was notable in its absence,
0: which which is quite striking for a Tory government. I think at a at a conceptual level, it's probably worth starting with separating out what is COVID spending and what is one-time spending. And 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 the ASI and I think a lot of other free market organizations have been relatively sympathetic to the idea that um, during an emergency, you can run up a, a kind of structural deficit. Um, sorry, you can run up a structural debt but as long as you don't run up a structural deficit. Um, and that kind of is a very different position to where the UK was in 2010. When Osborne came in, he was dealing with the structural deficit in the budget and, and year-on-year spending um, out of control. The problem is that also in the spending review we saw a lot of other spending, and and this is quite a consistent theme from this government. Um, is just the sense in which they they think there basically isn't a problem that you can't just throw a billion pounds at and solve, and that seems to be their their kind of only response. And and what you said there was was quite a good example, John. Um, the, the kind of four, was it the four billion pounds that they want to spend on, kind of northern. Um, levelling up uh, kind of fund. Now, that's just a kind of a classic Westminster game, isn't it? You know, it's the, the regions <laughs> can come to the centre and beg for some money that will be doled out by the Treasury to whoever they think is is best. Now, this is kind of um, keeping with a broader theme of this government, which is that it, it wants to use economics for political purposes. Um, it wants to use the budget for very political purposes to hold on, quote unquote, to these, these Red Wall seeds. Now, the problem is there's nothing that's necessarily going to prove effective about it. Let's let's put it that way in, in, in the nicest possible terms. Just spending a, a few billion pounds here or there on these left behind areas, these more deprived areas in the UK might feel and sound nice and it almost certainly is. But it's not going to create Thriving private sector economies and, and substantial job growth, or anything like that. And when you start spending money on place rather than people, which is, in my view, should be the focus of, of any kind of government support for people who are left behind, and seeing how you can get the, the individuals ahead, rather than building a, a, a nicer, um, as the, the classic case, putting um, a monorail or something around a town just because you know that that'll make economic development. Yeah. Just because you can. Or in the UK's case, the, um, HS2 being the hundred billion pound. Waste of money that it is in order to please a few specific constituents. It, it seems the the spending won't actually do that much. But what I also thought was interesting, and and uh, John be keen to get your thoughts on it, just kind of how difficult a political sell was, and um, the few cuts there were. So they're really kind of two. Kind of major yeah. cuts in the budget. It was the foreign aid cut from zero point seven percent to zero point five percent of GDP, as well as a public sector pay freeze for some public sector workers. So not not all. So NHS workers are exempt, and so are the lowest paid. But even even those caused a kind of a ruckus. So is there really any hope for the government not being big spending?
2: Well, I think that both of the uh, areas which he cut have very large and vocal um, advocates who have big media platforms. So. International Development has lots of MPs and ministers who are willing to back it to the Hill. I think for perfectly honourable reasons, as well as lots of charities, very well-known charities, you know, Oxfam, things like that. Um, and the, the public sector unions will always cry foul over any attempt to uh, freeze or cut wages. I mean, the fact that we're not even countenancing cutting any jobs at a time when we've just, we're spending sort of 400... Billion pounds on extra stuff this year. I think tells you just how difficult uh, this is for the government. Um, and these are very modest cuts in the, in the grand scheme of things. I mean, he's really, really tinkering on the margins in fiscal terms. We're talking about a few billion pounds off the aid budget um, and about ten billion off public sector pay, I, I think. Um, and as, as other John said, it's it's a political sort of. You can see the politics running through all of it you know we're going to protect this group of workers and that and it's all about messaging and showing that they care about a certain group even though actually the differential between public sector and private sector is that it's most acute at the lower end of the pay scale so you know there's a kind of superficial fairness to it but i think a lot of people in the private sector will be looking at this thinking you know we've taken absolute hammering this year and even a modest go at public sector wages gets greeted with this um, reaction
0: That's exactly right. I think it kind of speaks to a broader problem we have, which is that we've got a situation where even if the worst estimates aren't true, the economy has certainly shrunk. And yet it seems like the level of state spending will only increase in the coming year. And that inevitably has a has a crowding out effect. It's going to be much harder for the private sector to grow if if it has to compete extensively with the the public sector taking up a lot of resources in the economy. And even more problematically is this kind of idea being thrown around that we're going to have to start raising taxes soon. And I think you kind of were putting out earlier, the premise on which that is, is, is the awful deficits and, and the awful debt figures that are predicted and modelled. Um, but, but if you speak to anyone who's, who's involved in, in macroeconomic modelling, they will quietly admit in hushed tones that <laughs> it's basically a, a voodoo science and witchcraft at the best of times, let alone in the middle of a pandemic. And, and there's so much uncertainty out there about how the economy goes. I think Ryan Bourne from the Cato Institute wrote a really good column on, on Con Home about this, how right now there's just so much going on. There's so much complexity out there. We, we quite frankly just don't know. What the future will, will mean for a lot of industries, the extent to which they might bounce back quicker than and faster and better than we expect, or potentially worse, or there might be some huge reallocation issues that come with working from home.
2: We talk about one of the things that came up with public sector pay is this idea of consumer confidence, that the government has to keep on paying wages at a certain level, or it will hammer consumer confidence. The same voices then tell you that. We're all Keynesians now. Exactly, but this, you rarely hear consumer confidence talked about in terms of tax rises. And it's just as bad if people think they're going to get, consumption, people think they're going to get hammered.
0: Yeah, I mean consumer confidence and, and investor confidence as well, because the signalling that they're going to be more taxes on uh, investment, which is kind of increasing capital gains tax, for instance, that's going to discourage investment. I mean, we know if you tax something, yeah. it will discourage it to some extent. Um, John, I'm just wondering what, where you think the kind of politics up for this. Is is it potential that this could all be the kind of the bad news these are the worst estimates and then Rishi can come back next year and deliver a budget that's all a little bit better and and he can say you know we've got more money than we expected and you know fruit for everyone
1: i hope so uh i i mean personally i'm i'm okay with the government taking advantage of low interest rates to fund some of these big projects but i mean the temptation to uh, to raise taxes to kind of uh, reclaim the party's mantle as as being fiscally responsible is is certainly there and i think to do so as early as next year, at least, would be, uh, would be to kind of ignore the fact that the private sector is the goose that lays the golden egg to recovery, uh, and, then, and then it's it experienced the sort of vastly disproportionate economic damage thus far already. I don't think a tax-heavy uh, tax and spend budget next year would be very good at all.
0: Well, what would we like to see, John Ashmore, in terms of a, a growth for growth, growth budget? What have you published recently on CapEx that's most persuasive?
2: One that I really want to see is the extension of the stamp duty holiday. And that's got nothing to do with the fact that I'm in the middle of buying a house.
0: Um, <laughs> can always back self-interest. It's a horse that wins every time. It's, uh, the
2: one that, um, both the CPS and one that's been really cheered led by the ASI is full expensing, aka the factory tax.
0: I think that we first revealed the factory tax name on, on CapEx almost uh, probably a year yeah. ago. Or so. The the factory tax or full expensing is this incentive built into the existing tax system um, that that means that we discourage investment in capital in terms of kind of machinery, equipment, and buildings, because you have to depreciate that over kind of a 10 to 20-year period. Also, if you just hire some staff, you do something kind of, you know, buy some stationery, you can immediately expense, you can um, not pay tax on it. And as a result of the lack of full expensing, the fact that you can't expense Um, all those kind of investment, machinery, factory kind of related goods. You have a a structural, after you consider inflation, you end up kind of paying more tax on it than you would otherwise. And um, full expansion was a key part of the the Trump tax reforms and, and has been in terms of the academic evidence on it, is quite extraordinarily persuasive when it when it comes to having a, quite a large impact on growth. So we we did a we did an estimate um, of it. Now this is based upon a very different economic time, about a year ago, that showed that it w- would have a kind of a significant GDP boost effect, and and that kind of one one tax change alone will, will just kind of unlock all this investment, particularly as we we want companies to invest after COVID.
2: Yeah, I also um, I did like Sam Dimitri, who's another kind of star of the uh, wonk world had an interesting idea about um, the minimum wage rise and rather than lumping the cost of the minimum wage rise on businesses you can have it subsidized by the taxpayer um, because of the fragility of a lot of private sector businesses particularly I mean thanks to the um, pandemic. I think generally I want measures that reduce the cost of employing people because I think unemployment's going to be The prime kind of economic issue next year, we're looking at, let's say, seven and a half percent. I mean, that's almost double what it was before the pandemic. Um, So anything, I mean, perhaps reducing employers' national insurance contributions more. Um, I think they've tempered the minimum wage rise a bit, which I think is good um, in terms of not destroying jobs. But I'd I'd like to see them be a bit more kind of brave on that. It's difficult, though, because it, it does... It's one of those policies that the public just don't think of in those terms. They just think, oh, it's fair. It's people on low wages getting more money. But actually, I mean, most people on the minimum wage aren't in the bottom section of the income distribution anyway. They're people who's who perhaps in households where someone else is earning a pretty decent wage.
0: Absolutely. And the other part as well, and uh, isn't exactly a kind of tax and spend issue, but I think can end up being one of and part of the kind of major costs in terms of business operations, in terms of hiring people is just huge regulatory burdens. I mean, you, you can both encourage more hiring by, by doing direct things in terms of cutting taxes, but you can also try to reduce some of the regulatory burdens when hiring people um, and treat, for example, small businesses more generously. So they're not, you know, going through potential risks of you know unfair dismissal if they if staff don't work out. And there's a, there's a bunch of things you can do to kind of make it easier to hire people in the regulatory Realm as well, um, or even just more broadly, reducing red tape across the economy could be quite a big big boost and it's quite a huge potential. Uh, and I'd, I'd like to see a lot more discussion from, from the Treasury and from the government just in terms of what we can do about the regulatory state because we, we often, it's, it's often invisible compared to the tax burden the businesses face. But it, it can be, if you talk to somebody who's trying to set up a business, you, they will have their self in the weeds of crazy regulations that you and I have never had to come across, but are impacting the cost of everything that we do. Um, And if you're leaving the EU, you may as well try to, to some extent, get out of the EU's regulatory net and not just remain in it forevermore. But I think we might just move on to the the other big challenge that we face, which is COVID. England's second lockdown will come to an end on December 2nd, only to be replaced by a harsher tier-based system. Uh, the majority will be put under tier two, and this comes as plans were agreed across the entirety of the UK for a sort of Christmas break to restrictions. Depending how we're we're feeling about these new restrictions, this is kind of just what we expected. Are we white hot with anger and rage about the fact that the government's um, string our liberties for for many months more? And, and where do we think we we go from here?
2: Ooh, I'm I'm personally I'm not white hot with rage. I'm just kind of inured to it all now. I don't share the concern that a lot of people on the kind of centre-right do, that we're going to see our civil liberties permanently eroded. I think that it is a time, a COVID-specific thing, and in two or three years we'll be pretty much back to where we were before. I, I realise a lot of people listening to this won't agree with me, but that's perhaps that's just my temperament.
0: John has a Stockholm syndrome here. He's just come to accept it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah. And yeah.
2: <laughs> well, I just also I don't think that the British state has it within it to, to become a police state. Well, that's yeah. true they can they could barely do
0: these these restrictions successfully and <laughs> ensure yeah, compliance yeah. let alone we'll
2: simultaneously say the government's totally useless and we're going to become a totalitarian police state. Like, it's either one or the other. I think I mean re- well we're about I'm in London and we'll go into tier 2 which will basically be what we had before the latest lockdown which wasn't really a lockdown in any meaningful it didn't mean I couldn't leave the house or anything like that um although that just shows you how far we've come down the track that even the idea of the government telling you when you can and can't leave your home is now you know part of normal so I I'm just I wish there was a clearer sense of when we were going to come out of this at the moment it feels as unclear as it did in March or April of last year um, we have a vaccine, but we don't. Or we have several vaccines that seem to work, but not again. Not a particularly clear timeline on when they're going to be rolled out and how that's going to be done. Um, I think we'll, we might come on to some of the issues
0: around yeah, well, that. I think we'll come right to the um, vaccines in a second. I'm um, John McDonald. I'm, I'm just wondering where, where you're feeling about the restrictions.
1: No, very similar actually. I mean, I'm, I'm just, I'm just kind of, kind of tired of it all to be honest. I mean, the, 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 when it came around the first time in March. Uh, while I did understand why we had the restrictions, this is similar to John, John A there. Um, I'm not, I'm not a lockdown skeptic particularly. Uh, but I was kind of angry about it. You know, it was, it was, you know, not being able to do anything was a real change. Whereas now I've kind of resigned myself to the fact that we're in this sort of strange limbo for the foreseeable yeah. future. And I, I, I find it hard to believe that anyone is sort of at this stage really incensed or surprised that the majority of the country would be in tier two. Um, I don't think the government wants to take any chances uh, in sort of suppressing the virus until until it can start rolling out a
0: proper vaccination program. This is kind of the, the, tra- the trap though, is this dependence on a vaccine coming. I mean, there, there is always a risk that the vaccine may not arrive. The, the recovery is, it appears to almost be here. And I, I'm, you know, moderately optimistic about all the vaccines, but but what happens if it doesn't? And it seems like the implied strategy at this point from virus is is vaccine focused. It was good to see some uh, focus on on testing and, and potential mass testing in particularly in tier three areas like was done in Liverpool. I think that's the way to live with the virus in, in the short to medium term, yeah. particularly if we encourage the private sector to do a lot of the the testing. I mean, the the cost of lateral flow tests are so low, you could basically factor it into a a restaurant, at least at a a kind of a nice dinner out, or you could give it to people before they enter a theatre or a club or whatever else it may be. I I think we need to be thinking more about how we can just, rather than locking everyone up, identify people who have the virus and and discourage them from being able to do activities and and make sure that they go on quarantine and identify that more clearly rather than these general restrictions. So, I think the
2: reliance on the vaccine is just a massive admission of failure that nothing else they've tried has worked at all. I mean, you look at the amount of money they've spent on the test and trace stuff, and it is. And what do we have to show for it? Yeah, we have a system, but it doesn't do anything. It doesn't seem to actually curtail the spread of the virus at all. It just sort of tells you where it's spreading. But then, because for whatever reason, I don't know, contact tracing isn't good enough or people don't adhere to it um, properly. It just it feels like a diagnostic tool rather than, to go back to what we were saying about much earlier, it feels like diagnosis but not surgery. Um, I, but, yeah, like you say, in Liverpool it does seem to be working well. You do have these tests that I think they take about, what, half an hour? Um,
0: yeah, exactly. Yeah. I don't know why we're hearing, not what, hearing I mean... more of that, yeah. I think a big issue with with the current testing regime is just the fact that uh, it is so centralized and it just takes so long to get results. So by the time you get access to a COVID test, particularly if you're getting one in the mail, um, you've got to set it back to a centralized um, lab. They've got these huge lighthouse labs um, rather than using a kind of decentralized system. Um, and then by the time you start tracing people's contacts, it's, you know, two, three, four days since they've done a test, and then three, four, five days since they've potentially had symptoms of being contagious. Um, so just the system doesn't work at the speed that it needs to, and it's kind of too inflexible to do it. Um, And and then add on top of that the fact that we probably just have too big an outbreak at this point to do successful contact tracing. To do that properly, you really need to very effectively spend a lot of time with each person, talking through exactly everything they did, really teasing out everything. You know, people lie a lot to contact tracers, and you've got to be very well trained to spot when something doesn't quite add up in somebody's story because they're slightly embarrassed about something they did. You need to make it clear to them again and again and again that you know you just need to be open and honest about it. And then you need to go through that whole process with. Um, their contacts as well so you've got to do you know second line contact tracing as well if you we want to be truly effective <coughs> and potentially even third line contact tracing and just get a lot of people to go do tests part of the issue as well is we, have enough te- we haven't had enough tests to go- to do testing of everyone's contacts so we haven't actually been able to very well identify um, who were the ones at risk
2: we're trying to lock the door after the horse has bolted as as you said there i think that's the really key point is that the time to have done mass contact uh test and tracing was in august or in the back end of July, when we have much lower rates.
0: It's the same story in February as well. If we've been yeah. doing full proper contact tracing in February and, and early March, we potentially could have stopped the first outbreak as well. We right, just didn't yeah. ever seem to have the capacity to do it. Um, I'm kind of interested in this Christmas uh, relief um, and, and whether we think that's a particularly good idea.
2: I've got a bee in my bonnet about this. I think it just makes no logical sense because either you're saying it's, it's kind of safe to do this bubbling thing in which case, why not just do it all the time? Or you're saying it's unsafe, which I think is much more likely to be the implication. In which case, yeah, don't do it. Basically, don't don't risk people's lives if you think that's what this policy does for the sake of three days spent over Christmas. Having said that, I think people will alter their behavior anyway. I don't think they need a kind of mandate from the government to do so. I think everyone knows it's risky to older people They'll keep their distance so maybe we won't have this great festive outbreak, but I think the rules.
0: I mean, yeah, I'm mean, i pretty worried about a festive outbreak and I think that looks quite likely. I suspect to some extent, the reason why the government's doing this is because they know from a behavioral perspective that, that people are more likely they're not going to break the rules around Christmas. They're just going to do whatever they want. And, and they're worried, and I think legitimately so, that if people start breaking the rules en masse over Christmas um, to a much larger extent, then that kind of behavior will go on into the new year because once you've broken the rules once you just kind of keep and breaking the rules again and again and again you you understand that the state can't follow you every moment of every day and and can't focus on on what you're doing and and you will just keep and push the rules more and more so i think they're worried that if they don't give people this break over christmas it'll just mean that there'll be a lot less ability to enforce the restrictions coming into january
1: boris couldn't really countenance being the grinch at uh, this time of year. I agree with John A. on all the sort of policy points. It doesn't make any logical sense uh, in terms of in terms of being a policy. Um, but as you say, it doesn't really matter. People will do what they're going to do. I think it's part of a uh, an ongoing negotiation, an ongoing settlement uh, with people about whether or not they are breaking the rules or not breaking the rules. And I don't think over Christmas, if, if you were going to say, don't go home, stay where you are, people would break the rules and then they would feel more comfortable breaking the rules and we'd have further problems going into next year so i kind of understand it from a behavioral perspective uh if not not a particularly logical one
2: i just think it's too complicated though as well like three household oh for sure it is confusing, i think you should yeah. just say like oh you can have eight people for dinner or something like that just something much simpler at the moment everyone i'm talking to is like what are the rules remind me like which days can we see each other and, and, yeah, and divorces kind
0: of... as well mean that you can have effectively six bubbles interacting with each other over the period or something. It's, exactly, it's quite yeah. a
2: Crikey.
0: weird situation. And once you've got
2: ah. there, you just think, you know what, screw it, let's just hang out.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Talk- yeah, talking of the cavalry coming in, I just want to finish up the discussion with a little bit of thought about kind of vaccine and particularly vaccine hesitancy. Um, John McDonald, you wrote a great piece for John Ashmore's site to, to bring you uh-huh. two together for CapEx yeah. on. Um, all this discussion we've got from from various quarters about how we need to ban anti-vax discussion. I suppose th- the first question is, to what extent should we be worried about anti-vaxing and, and people not taking vaccinations that it won't lead to herd immunity? And then the secondary question to that is, is censorship the right solution?
1: Yeah, I think there's, uh, there's certainly a concern that online dis- disinformation would undermine the vaccination effort. Um, I mean, the problem here, really, though, is that the, the government needs to build trust and confidence uh, to build uptake in, in in the vaccine once it becomes, you know, once once they start rolling out the strategy. Uh, but as we've just said, uh, people don't really trust the government all that much in terms of its competency. Uh, we've just spent the last five minutes bashing it and its com strategy. Um, and I think if you're not able to engage with people honestly about their concerns so if you go down this route of censorship uh of of kind of clamping down on anti-vax speech uh the the cost of doing that is greater than the benefit of kind of blocking off the complete nonsense of these theories um and I'm not saying that anti-vaxxers aren't a challenge that needs to be overcome but the course to censor them kind of smells to me more like a moral panic than a, than a sensible strategy um the real the real important group here are people who are kind of on the fence about the vaccine given that it's been produced in record time and who are hesitant, who might be willing to rely on others uh to build the herd immunity for them so that they get the benefits without having to take the risk. And the government has in fact encouraged us to take less risks all through this year. So it's it's quite a big change in pitch for for what the government want wants people to do from a behavioral perspective uh, uh, in the start of next year. Um, but the bottom line is uh, the government needs to focus on a clear, detailed, and transparent communication about the vaccine, and it hasn't really succeeded in doing that with regards to lockdown. So I'm, I'm hoping that people will feel reassured and uh, uh, and safe about the efficacy of the vaccine. But but as I say, I'm I'm kind of staying neutral on on as to how well the government will be able to do that.
2: So I think just to pick up on something John said, there um, there are three groups of people you're talking about when you talk about. Anti vaxxers. There are deniers who are a very small, hardcore, completely implacable group, and the people who actually spread the disinformation. Mm -hmm. Then there are refusers who just outright say no, Vax. Again, pretty hard to persuade. And then that much, much bigger group of people who are hesitant. And that can just be people who think, oh, I've heard there are side effects. You know, I'm a bit concerned. I hear they put a bit of the disease in you. I hear vaccines have mercury in them. And they're picking up on little fragments of the disinformation that's come from the deniers um often who probably some of whom probably know that it's absolute nonsense they're spouting but they're just doing it for ulterior motives or because you know they like to see the world burn um in terms of herd immunity i don't think the numbers of any of them are large enough to stop us getting to herd immunity if the vaccine is rolled out properly you only need 60 70 i think um bear in mind also that quite a lot of people have already had covid so they will be immune anyway. Um, so I'm not too worried on that score. I think John uh, M. is is absolutely right, though. I mean, censoring it is probably just going to feed the fire. Um, also, anti-vax stuff is very well established online already. Again, it's, it's locking the door after the horse has bolted, and most people don't believe it. Um, on the confidence issue, I think the thing is to get scientists and sort of other figures, not necessarily ministers, to help deliver that message because even if politicians aren't particularly trusted or liked i think people academics and scientists do have a level of of trust among the public as you know as being experts in this field so perhaps involving them uh, other figures a bit more in that and also just getting doctors well trained up on how to talk to hesitant people um, is an important part of it as well and to kind of talk through their concerns not to berate them Um, so yeah, there's plenty of things they can do. I, I'm actually quite optimistic on that on that front.
0: I, I think you're right, especially about that last point about having those one on one conversations to persuade people um is absolutely essential. I think the censorship that people are talking about and imagining here will, will absolutely feed the fire that the reaction particularly amongst um people who are trying to build this cons- grand conspiracy about bill gates or something will be well we we know the truth and they're too scared for you to hear it they'll use the censorship as evidence of their conspiracy and that that's precisely how it, it feeds feeds the flame and, and ends up causing more issues um and there's also just this broader idea that people are you know Irrational and stupid, and, and that if they read something wrong online, that they can't be otherwise persuaded, and that, and that it'll you know turn their brains to mush. I think, but I think most people who are saying that they might have some hesitancy about the vaccine have some genuine questions that we that we need to answer persuasively, and we don't need to run away from. Um, I think, uh, and we haven't kind of talked about it too much, and, and it's it's come quite a complex scientific issue, but something like um the the Oxford um AstraZeneca vaccine result announcement and it seems like there were some substantial kind of um randomized controlled trial mistakes made in the development of uh, so the 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 development of their trials and the fact that they did multiple trials using slightly different methodologies as well as this whole idea that a half dose and then a full dose proved more effective than two full doses even though that actually wasn't part of the trial it was it was an unintentional a mistake that led them to give a bunch of people half doses because they they didn't realize that the concentration of of the vaccine properly when they were um mass producing it uh and then and then using it more broadly and the fact that there's going to have to be another one now that's all that's all very complex stuff it, there hasn't been any question here to say that the the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine is unsafe though it's still it's still extremely safe Um, It might be not quite as effective as the Moderna or the Pfizer vaccine. It might be 60 or 70 percent effective. If you told me, Matthew, we could get a 60 or 70 percent effective vaccine a couple of months ago, I'd be very happy. It's just a bit of an expectations game because the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines have come out, at least we think, as quite effective. Um, I think that the moral case for authorizing them as soon as possible is very strong, um, because as long as there aren't harms and there does appear to be a large level of benefit, we, we do need to start doing it straight away. And this, this classic thing that's now come out that apparently Moderna developed the vaccine in two days in January. And the fact that it's taken so long to go through the process, it took months and months to, get, to go through the process to be able to start the trials. Obviously the trials themselves take time. And in the regulatory process in the US, They're for some bizarre reason, they're not doing a meeting until December 10. You think that they could have a meeting a little bit sooner to discuss the vaccine, which is potentially gonna save a lot of lives and, and, and save the economy as well. Um, is, is extraordinary and it's it's something that I think we're going to have to have a broader discussion about, just the slowness of medical innovation and medical regulation, the extent to which that is all hampered by the, these... Um, Extraordinarily precautionary approach has taken. I mean, I understand there does need to be a precautionary approach to the vaccine to some extent, but it just seems like it holds back a lot of potential innovations and something that we we do need to have a talk about when it comes to comes to technology and medicine. Um, but so just back to the, the kind of vaccine itself. What, what was everyone's thoughts on this um, uh, announcement from the the head of Qantas, the Australian airline, who said? The potentially to get on one of his planes, you might have to use a vaccine. Now, do we think that's terrible and authoritarian to begin with? And secondly, um, is this just going to be the kind of reality of it that the private businesses are going to require people to have vaccines and therefore this vaccine hesitancy issue isn't that much of an issue? Because if people want to do anything, they'll just have to get a vaccine anyway.
2: I think that that is highly likely to be the case. Um, and I think, but I think we'll have a kind of a mix where the government essentially tells like trade associations and stuff like this is what you've got to do to make everything covid safe um so while they might not pass a specific law saying you have to have a vaccine to go into a pub they'll say pubs have to be covid safe and that means doing this or something like that i could imagine that very much it being the situation i'm curious to see how they go about it i mean are we all going to have to wear like a glastonbury style vaccine wristband or like get a little tattoo or something <laughs> i mean it's i think private businesses will make it prohibitively difficult to not be vaccinated unless you've got an exemption um but that creates its own problems i mean i saw a video of police arresting someone and giving them a fine for not wearing a mask even though they had an exemption which i thought was pretty extraordinary um so that, i'm sure there'll be issues to do with that but uh essentially yeah i think it's it'll be private businesses that kind of lead the way with plenty of nudging from the government
1: i mean for me i the the airline one is is Probably the area of least concern. I think people are usually pretty pretty up for getting their jabs before they go abroad. And from my understanding, I mean, if Qantas if is just a an Australian domestic airline, then uh, then people. Are, I mean, Qantas, are very much... I should
0: say Qantas is an international airline. So they do um They do fly uh, Australia. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough, fair enough. Um, from, from the UK and, and from a lot of other countries, at least not, at least normally not at the moment. Um, I, I think what's interesting though as well in when it comes to Qantas' case is I doubt Australia will allow entry of people, let alone the airline, what the private airline does makes their decision. Australia is not going to allow people into the country who haven't been vaccinated for COVID. Australia has used an extraordinarily harsh um, lockdown measures and border restrictions so far. And there isn't, you know, if there's herd immunity in the UK, which I think is highly unlikely, there's definitely not herd immunity in Australia. So we give up all that would be paramount to insanity. Um, and it's not unprecedented for Australia as well. I was kind of getting at earlier, which is to visit Australia from certain countries um, in Africa, you need to have had a or a yellow fever vaccine um, as a, as a condition of entry because you don't want to spread yellow fever. So, there's, and there's a lot of other examples across the world of places you need vaccines to to go. So, I, I don't think it's that'll be kind of the nature when it comes to travel at the very least. Even if domestically, I don't think citizens should be forced to be vaccinated. If you're going to another country, I don't think it's unreasonable for that other country to put that requirement on you, especially as a non citizen who's a visitor.
2: Yeah I definitely definitely disagree with mandatory vaccinations just on on the principle that the state should not be imposing medical treatments on people um but yeah I think you're right I mean it is part of the course that you have to have tests for certain things to enter certain countries I mean I um when I I went to Russia when I was a student I had to have an HIV test and the yellow fever test um to get in there for example and as um other John says like you you get your jabs to go into various countries already so I don't think that'll be a big issue um, and I think the kind of people who travel internationally are very aware of this kind of stuff as well. My interest, I think the interesting thing is when that regime, how long it continues for, will there become a point where, okay, we've reached a certain point of immunity, now we can kind of lay off a bit, Or will it be years and years and years that we're going to live in a kind of post-COVID world? I, I, I have no idea, but I'm just I'm fascinated to see. Grimly fascinated.
0: Look The questions ahead. I think we should move on to our final topic, which is Boris's green industrial revolution. Last week, the Prime Minister outlined a vision for a green industrial revolution, which includes everything from wind, hydrogen and carbon capture and storage to the landmark announcement that petrol and diesel vehicles will be banned from 2030. The government claims that this will create 250,000 jobs. And again, as we were kind of alluding to earlier, a lot of these jobs will apparently be in manufacturing heartlands in the in the, uh, formerly Red Wall seats. So, John, I, I'm kind of interested in yeah, magic and butterflies all, all provided by our, our masters in the government. I'm, I'm John, John McDonald. I'm kind of interested in, in where we take this as kind of political dimensions. This was meant to be the, the big relaunch of Boris.
1: Mm, well, we should we should remember a couple of things. I mean, I think as we've just hinted at, Boris loves a sort of a big project announcement. I mean, all through his time as, as mayor of London, we had bridges, buses, bikes. Um and I think he wants to kind of rejuvenate that image of of himself and and the Tories now as a as a as a big ideas kind of factory, um, and start putting the, the kind of COVID strategy behind them. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think it's landed particularly well. I, I think I think we've become very kind of desensitized to myriad government announcements this year, um, if we weren't already from previous years, from Brexit, for example. Um, I do also think a, a decent chunk of environmentalists won't support the policies because they don't think they're radical enough. And then on the other side of things, uh, the Tories' kind of traditional base will feel fairly apathetic towards towards greening recovery and a green industrial revolution in any way. Um, so it's kind of it's kind of landed a bit of a flop in my opinion.
2: I think it's just a really strange mixture of measures as well. I mean, on the one hand, the government their te- some of their te- points are things like more cycle lanes. On the other, it's like banning the petrol car. <laughs> you know, like these enormous <laughs> seismic changes to our society in the space of ten years. And what um John M said about is kind of you're in your desensitized to government announcements. Not just over this year, but I, I'm desensitized to government green announcements Kind of package. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we had a green jobs package in the summer, for example. I also just want to tackle this. One thing that really gets on my nerves about these announcements is when they say X will support however many thousand jobs. And for one thing, saying jobs doesn't really tell you much about the cost if you don't include the salary. For another thing, it's not like they never talk about it in terms of net jobs created. I mean, jobs are a cost. you rather have an energy system that needed to employ a million people to employ the energy the country needed, or a thousand. I'm pretty sure you'd take the thousand and spend the rest of the money on something else. And I just really dislike the way that, um, that it's presented as a kind of untrammeled gain, that this uh, new technology will need to employ these thousands and thousands of people. I think the less labour intensive, the better. And the more that people you know, on the centre-right can make that argument the better, because it's again, it's one of those ones that superficially sounds great, but is actually not.
0: Well, it, it of course does go back to our, our our master in chief, Adam Smith, who explained very well that the sole purpose of production is consumption. It's not for the sake of the production that we make things. And if you, the problem with our political debate, though, is it often focuses on on outputs rather than what is consumer benefits. And in terms of the consumer benefits here, you know, there's absolutely a, a need to tackle climate change. Um, and and do that in the most efficient, effective way possible. But there's also a lot of consumer costs along with that. Um, And and this is where, you know, just to play a, let's say, you know, playing Bentham here, we've got to consider that. You've got to consider how much carbon emissions cutting am I getting from banning um, diesel and petrol cars from 2030? Um, Is that justifiable for the huge, huge imposition that's going to put onto the British people? And potentially the technology will be better and there'll be a lot cheaper um, cars that are electric, in which case the market's kind of doing its magic anyway, and you, the government doesn't actually need to intervene to ban anything. Um, what's kind of striking about the government's approach more than anything else is just, in a sense, how socialist it is. The government's picking a bunch of technologies that it thinks it can innovate to success. Not that those technologies are particularly well proven. Hydrogen is a carrier of energy. It, it's not an energy source. It's, it's going to take a lot of energy to produce and you've got to get that energy potentially from, from conventional sources. So there's a lot of carbon emissions involved or from building a lot more um, solar and winds and, and getting that solar wind out there is just extremely expensive as well. So there's, it's not like hydrogen is cheap or carbon capture and storage we've been talking about forever, but it, it's just not deployable on a large enough scale. Um, and a, a cheap enough scale to, to make it work successfully at. Now, but potentially all these technologies will come along and, and prove, prove um, my scepticism today wrong. But I am sceptical when the government says that, well, this is the, what, what we're betting on. Um, now, I probably to some extent make a bit of an inconsistency when it comes to nuclear energy, which is I think nuclear energy is a proven technology. The extent to which we price it out of the market and price it out of the electricity grid and reduce our use of nuclear energy, it is a moral failure of the country because it is the only source of um, relatively cheap compared to wind and solar, extremely low carbon emission and extraordinarily safe. It is the safest energy source. In fact, um, nuclear energy, there was a study by NASA, I think, something between um, 1970 and 2009 saved over a million lives as a result of of reduced pollution from from coal and gas. Um, so nuclear is a life saving technology today, let alone in the future if it can combat climate change. And the fact that that isn't just the one focus just frustrates me.
2: Yeah, it's really annoying. And I think mm-hmm. if they called it something like fusion energy, it would have a much less because people associate nuclear with weapons and with Chernobyl, basically. Um, and because that was genuinely an existential threat to humanity. And they ignore the fact that reactors now are not like the RBKMK reactor um, that caused that that explosion. Um, so there's a huge amount of kind of PR work to be done on, on behalf of the nuclear industry. There are now some quite interesting pro nuclear environmental campaigners out there. I think maybe you know Mike Schellenberger, who. Um,
0: Zion book. Lights, who we had on a. a and Zion webinar. Lights, yeah. Not yeah. so long ago, who was it was formerly an extinction rebellion activist and is now um, running campaigns. She she runs actually Schellenberger's outfit in the UK, Environmental Progress. Which is um kind of using some of the less the left's guerrilla tactics in favor of nuclear energy. So she was the other day they were going around projecting pro nuclear messages onto buildings in London, <laughs> which I thought was very cool.
2: I love that. Yeah, yeah, I think it's great. Um and as she says quite you know, so persuasively, there's this sort of omerta on nuclear in the environmental industry, but without any actual real backing for it. And as as you say, it's it's pretty safe. It's, it's, pretty all, it's
0: all about following the, the science and when it comes to climate yeah. change except for when it comes to I nuclear. Go,
2: one, one final point before I let other John <laughs> jump in is that at least in the UK, I, we're not being as forthright with it as I would, I would like, but thank God we're not going the way that Germany are going, shutting down their plants ahead of time and then they're having to burn more coal to make up the deficit in uh, energy production. It's just absolutely insane. And, and the same in France, they've been shutting down plants um they were the kind of world leaders in nuclear energy and they seem to have, like turned their back on it so i really like other countries in europe to, to change their tune as well
1: yeah i mean there are there are a couple of things that kind of stick out to me uh with the government's environmental strategy first as we've just been saying with, with nuclear i think if boris wants to be seen as a sort of techno optimist uh I, I wish that was based more on making a positive case for nuclear bit, you know, renaming it to Fusion or something like that. Um, but also the kind of the, the the more socialistic uh elements behind it, as we were saying, oh, it's it's all about these jobs, these new green jobs uh, that the government is going to create in these areas. And it's uh it's just been interesting for me to see the kind of Tories plunder. These more left-wing talking points uh, to go back to something we were talking about earlier. For example, the, uh, I'm more used to hearing about like a national investment bank from Yanis Varoufakis than I am Rishi Sunak, um, and it's uh, yeah, it's very interesting to see them kind of pick quite a strange line uh, to, to chart with these sorts of things.
0: It, it is. I mean, honestly, my solution to climate change. I know this is politically challenging, but it is it is actually not an insurmountable policy problem, which is. Um, carbon emissions, greenhouse emissions are a negative externality in production. When you um, produce carbon emissions, you cause a cost to somebody else. We have a, an amazing way of dealing with that, which is a per- peruvian tax, which is put a price on carbon. You know, have a carbon tax. Don't use that for revenue raising purposes. Don't use it to to hurt the the, the working poor. Um, provide payments back to people on welfare, provide tax cuts to people, tax something we don't want and you'll get less of it, and it will prove extraordinarily effective at reducing carbon emissions without having to go through this stupid rigmarole every six months of another £200 million announcement. Um, all, all the kind of red tape and regulation that we don't talk about as much, but just that increase the cost of doing business across every sector um, because of climate change. And, and the government's kind of randomly all over the place, makes all these regulations for housing or for how a factory is supposed to operate in order to, for them to reduce carbon emissions, rather than using a carbon tax, which would encourage whatever was the most efficient behaviour. Because people would respond. People respond to incentives. them. It's, one of the first lessons of economics, if people will respond in a way is to discourage and um, disuse carbon to a greater extent. And you can vary the carbon prices as necessary to make sure that's the case. And again, you can also vary the conversation back to people as to make it more politically viable. And the fact that we can't seem to have that debate is just extremely frustrating. And inevitably, if we do get a carbon tax, it'll probably be done terribly in the sense that it will be done in addition to everything else, rather than as a replacement of everything else and a replacement of all the current picking of winners that we're doing.
1: I mean, I, I just, I, I wish the Tories would adopt a more market-positive approach to to the the green industrial revolution, as they keep calling it. I mean, the market fundamentally is good at doing more with less. I mean, I, I think, Les, you've pointed out many times, that we reached peak stuff in in 2001, uh, and ever since then, uh, it's been going down. And I, I yeah, as I said, rather, I'd rather the government so said more. You mean
2: sort of de-accumulation? Yes. Yeah. 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 This is a really interesting point as well. I mean, your iPhone contains sort of fifty gadgets worth of stuff that would previously have been in a in a typical home. I think um, I completely agree with you, John. But I I do wonder if there's a point here around language um, that we people in our sort of area tend to use. I'm not sure that talking about like the market really appeals to. No, um, probably not large groups of people if they really understand it it makes it sound sort of dogmatic whereas actually what you're doing is just describing interactions that take place naturally in pretty much every every human society i wonder if if our sort of wing of politics or economics is better off just talking about stuff in terms of prices and living standards without a kind of any of the academic baggage I mean, I wonder what you guys think about De- that.
1: Depoliticizing it a bit, maybe, is that yeah, exactly. And just wonderful. making it
2: bread and butter yeah. rather than sort of oh well, Hayek says this, which is great. And, oh, for sure, uh, for sure, yeah. Um, but it's it's difficult to get that message across because Labour, I think, have historically, uh, you know, tended to adopt that sort of language. It's just all about wages, jobs, you know, food on the table, kind of thing, and that that does you know, appeal to people who might not have much time on their hands to think too deeply about economic issues.
0: I, I think this is a challenge we face, which is people tend to kind of be relatively positive about markets and, and free markets when it's kind of compared to socialism. But it's kind of like a begrudging respect. It's like it's like they feel a little bit naughty about it. It's like, oh, yeah, kind of socialism would be nice, but... Um, but, and I associate nice things with socialism, but this doesn't quite work. What we really struggle to is create the enthusiasm for, for the market processes and the kind of innovation that creates. And I think we'd spend a lot more time talking about um, how that. I think you're right, how it impacts people's lives um, and how it lifts people out of poverty um, in the developing world. Um, how it is what you know successful businesses mean higher wages for you and mean bread on the table and and you can't have a competitive system where it's it's labor versus business as the kind of marxist one is kind of the basis of the the labor movement and that we we can have an economy that that functions far better if we can actually effectively work together
2: yeah and i think that the, the just arguments from history rather than theory are a, a lot more persuasive as well um i mean look at somewhere like australia for example that has had a very free trading approach and is one of the highest standards of living in the world or hong kong or singapore south korea versus north korea i think using these um empirical examples rather than saying we tend to think consumption is better it sounds like gobbledygook whereas they can very clearly say like oh well we know you know living standards are better in countries with freer markets to me is is a very persuasive um
0: well, absolutely. On on that note about uh, free markets solving all of uh, the world's problems, <laughs> I have to, yeah. have to leave it there with our, our listeners either I'm nodding along enthusiastically or, or raging with anger at our, our negativity. Um, so thank you very much uh, for, for joining us today. I'm John Ashmore from, from CapEx and John McDonald's, uh, head of government here at the ASI. My name's Matthew Lesh and I'm the head of research at the ASI. Uh, please do subscribe to The Pin Factory on your chosen podcast provider. Leave us a, a generous five-star rating if you're enjoying it or pop us a line if, if you've got any other feedback. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks.